Western Marks podcast. My name is Eddie Smith alongside my co-editor Carlos Garrido and the Midwestern Marks editorial board to bring you a very special episode of the podcast. Today as a collective we will be interviewing Peruvian Marxist academic and Midwestern Marx writer Sebastian Leone. Yesterday Pedro Castillo, a working class Marxist, won the presidential election in Peru and given these developments we wanted to create a resource where socialists and communists from around the world could learn about the political and economic history of Peru, their struggle for socialism and against imperialism. As Marxists we want to contribute to an analysis of Peru that uses historical materialism to understand the developments in Peru which has led to led them to this current point. So with that being said, I'll kick it over to Carlos to introduce our interviewers, as well as our guest of honor here, Sebastian. Thank you, Eddie. As you said, today we are joined with a few comrades from the Midwest Remarks editorial board. Participate, participating, we have comrade Mitchell K. Jones. Hello. Kaya Winchell. Hello. And Tim Russo. Solidarity, everybody. As for our guest today, Sebastian is a philosophy professor at the Pontifical Catholic University in Lima, Peru. He is a longtime militant and a writer for Midwestern Marx and the Marx and Engels Institute in Peru. Sebastian, we are honored to have you on. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really honored to be here. Well, before we start into what was our regular scheduled questions, um, I wanted to bring up something that's somewhat of a new development, uh, what's going on with the election, and it's, it's, I heard it's going to the courts. So do you mind speaking about that real quick before we start? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, as, as you know, we won for a very tight margin. And um, Keiko's, Keiko Fujimori's team had a collaboration with some of the most prestigious um, law firms in Lima. And they tried to annul something uh, uh, like around 200,000 votes from the, from the south of the country, the Andean south, with some, I don't know, arguments like uh, she said that there was some problems with the, sign, with the signatures and that the, the fact that many people in some of these towns in the South have uh, shared the same last name and what, you know, like trying to look for excuses to annul these votes. Uh, among other reasons, because um, many tables didn't even have a single vote for Keiko in the South. So they argued that that was a probable fraud. fraud. But, you know, it's like making up excuses for that. They, they didn't have any evidence to, just to really affirm that was the case. So in the end, um, they tried to present these arguments to the National Jury of Elections, and, but they forgot to pay a fee that they had to pay. So they, you know, they were, they were like, I don't know, um, 800 tables. And in the end there was like 150 that they did pay. So um, the jury tried 
uh, yesterday to extend the, the time for them so they could pay for everything and present all the tables they wanted to anew, but there was a massive demonstration last night and they backed down. So that's it for now. When you say tables, you mean tables full of ballots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, very well. Um, we just wanted to start with that because that's the most recent development we had. Uh, and so without further ado, let's start with our scheduled questions. So Eddie, take it away. All righty, yep. I'm gonna ask the first question here. Um, so as I was looking into the history of Peru, one of, I noticed that one of the lesser known revolutions in Latin American history happened in Peru in 1968 when uh, Juan Velasco Alvarado and the revolutionary armed forces took power in Lima. Um, and some people reject that this was even a revolution, uh, given its top-down military character. Um, but the reforms that Alvarado put into action were very real. He nationalized a major U.S. multinational oil company, nationalized transportation, telecommunications, and passed a massive agrarian reform bill. Um, this was before he was overthrown by more conservative factions in 1975. Uh, but can you talk about the impact of Alvarado's revolution, uh, whether it was a revolution at all? Uh, and did it set the stage in any way for the civil war, which would follow between the Shining Path and the military? Okay, um, that's a really good question. So um, let's see. Um, it was uh, <laughs> back in the day when this happened in 68 that it, it was a shock for the left because you know it, it's shocking you know like a coup d'etat from the military and they were left-wing yeah? and they tried to implement the reforms that the left had been trying to do for decades so yeah it was shocking and, and the left tried to understand what was happening and there was like a division among the left you know like the, the maoists um, groups uh, Bandera Roja, which means um, red flag, no, but, but because you, you had uh, the Communist Party split in like three or four different parties. And you had Bandera Roja and Bandera Roja split in uh, Patria Roja, Red Fatherland, which still exists, and Sendero Luminoso, no, Shining Path, no, for example. And all of the Maoists said that Velasco's government was like a fascist government. So they wanted to go against the reforms. They tried to sabotage the government. But you also had the Communist Party of Peru um, unity that also still exists. And nowadays they are allies with Patria Roja. But back, back in the day, they, they were really, really, I don't know, like um, peleados, Carlos, I don't know. Like, uh, they were fighting against each other. Yeah, yeah, they, they were rivals. So um, unity did support, you know, they, they gave critical support for, to Velasco you know, with, with other groups. You also had, um, for example, in the 60s, you had um, the National Liberation Army that tried to, Im to implement like a um, Guevara's guerrilla back, back here. And well, they didn't succeed, but they were an inspiration for Velasco and their leader, who is still alive, he's called um, Hector, Hector Bejar, and he did support Velasco's government. Um, well, you, it, it's, it might be imprecise to say that it was absolutely top-down because you had like this long history of Indian, you know, indigenous revolts here. 
no, of, of peasant revolts here. And Velasco just like accelerated the process. Yeah, he like he, he took the I don't know how to say um, La Posta, Carlos. Uh, I like, don't know. That's um, not a Cuban-Spanish word, right? So <laughs> that's my. Reference. I don't know. He, he took the lead from the from the you know, the, the peasants and, and peasant movements and indigenous movements. So it wasn't absolutely top down, yeah. And he even tried with Bejar, you know, this guy from the National you know, Eurasian Army. He he founded you know, the the, um, the revolutionary government of the armed forces. They implemented a, a group that was called. Sinamos, and it, it was like the unofficial party of the government, and they wanted to work directly with the masses. You know, they tried to build some sort of social democracy. I, I, I'm not meaning like social democracy, like the you know the, the left leaning social. Democracy. I, I mean like a democracy, a democracy for the people. You no, know, that um, was like. Um, that, that had like a dialectical relationship with the government, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. They tried to implement that. That was, that was all destroyed when the, when the right-wing faction of the military took over in 75. They even <laughs> destroyed all of the investigations that Sinamos was doing because they, they had a lot of, it had a political wing, but also an intellectual wing. And they did a lot of research back in the day. They destroyed all of that, you know, the, the right-wing in the military. So um, how did it change the Peruvian political and social landscape? I think that you see it from that point of view, it, it was revolutionary. It was because before Velasco, this country was what Marxists in the day called semi-feudal. You, know, you had um, serfdom, right, in, 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 the, in the Andean, south and the north and almost all of the country except the coast you had the haciendas and uh, the landlords that we call uh, we called back in the day gamonales they were like you know like small uh kings like petty you know petty kings in almost all of the country and they had they ruled in in the name of the state you say that actually almost all of the laws back in the day, they had to have permission from the Gamonales to even apply them. So, yeah, like well, feudal lords. Yeah, yeah, almost a feudal order. So Velasco abolished them, and in, from that point of view, it it, it was revolutionary. Uh, what we could call it like a democratic revolution, right? A political revolution, but. Um, it was incomplete. It was incomplete. It still is. Um, for example, we didn't have a universal vote until 1980 right? because it was uh, reserved for people that could read and write. So yeah, yeah. He, Velasco did like the. I I'd say the the Peru that we know right now that made possible for someone like Castillo to get where he is, was made by Velasco. So he's very popular among the people here. And he's being vindicated more and more by the left. It's, yeah, even, yeah. 
yeah, it's, I'd say most of the left right now, except except the Shining Path. They hate me. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Those are yeah. great. Um, yeah, but they have they hate him because you know when the Shining Path did their their popular warfare back in the eighties, they had a, I don't know how it, how to say it an analysis from this country that they made before the last cause reforms. No, they presupposed the semi-feudal conditions here in Peru. So they thought they would gain support from the peasants based on that analysis. And they, I, I, I've heard that they even had some people in the party that wanted to make a new research, but Guzman didn't want to because he wanted to go to, you know, warfare. So, um, the fact that the peasants already were the owners of their own land sabotaged the the this man's plans so he hates velasco because of that because they many many people say that in the end like velasco retroactively defeated the shining path so yeah yeah because i don't know if it was the case they might have had a lot of support but they didn't that's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, and my question kind of uh, piggybacks on that last idea about uh, Shining Path. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the history of socialist thought in Peru. It seems like um, the figure of Jose Carlos uh, Mariega Tegui um, and, and uh, the so-called Chairman Gonzalo are sort of the yin and yang of Peruvian Marxism from, from my perspective. Uh, one is beloved by many and hated by a few, and the other is hated by many and loved by a few. So I was wondering uh, what comments you had on the lasting legacy of, the, of those two figures uh, on Peruvian politics. And, um, and also to what extent is it fair to call Free Peru today uh, Maria Tegui's party? Okay, that's a really good question too. Um, let's see. Um, so Mariatti isn't a very interesting figure. I, I think he has, I don't know, maybe he's really similar to, to Gramsci actually, Mariatti. And the interesting thing is that Mariatti was, he became a Marxist in Italy because he was um, I don't know how you say it. Um, like he was expelled from the country back in the day because of his participation in popular mobilizations. And he went to live to Italy and he was, as a journalist, he was, he was um, side by side with the popular mobilizations in Italy, with the, the, the working class and uh, peasants in Italy. And he was present when they founded the Communist Party of Italy. So, and well, he read a lot of Italian authors. He was very influenced, very much influenced by the same sources of Gramsci, you know, besides Lenin and Marx and Engels, also um, Croce and those are like, like Italian Hegelians. They were very much um, present in Mariate's. Uh, education. He was also very influenced by Sorel. You know, he has a thing for Sorel, he loves him. 
that's complicated for for me, but he does. And, uh, and what, wasn't uh, wasn't one of his early uh, Peruvian mentors an anarchist who was in the government, an anarchist uh, politician, right? Oh, well, you mean Gonzalez Prada, Manuel Gonzalez Prada? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was more like an, uh, a bourgeois intellectual, you know, but, but um, he's sort of the godfather of uh, the Peruvian left, Gonzalez Prada, right? He, he has these uh, vindications of, of the indigenous peoples back here. And he was one of the first intellectuals that um, asserted the, the need for the indigenous peoples who became a political agent of their own for their own emancipation. So that's really important in Gonzalez Prada for, and also for Mariati, right? Um, what Mariati, I, I'd say that he's also really interesting because he's uh, in direct opposition to what was happening in Latin American socialism back in the day. That was, I don't know, the, the first, I think the first Marxist intellectual in Latin America is from Argentina, and he was pretty much indebted with the Second International. I don't, I, I don't remember his name right now, but you know, like very rationalist and also positivistic in his perspectives, and like with an evolutionary way of um, comprehending Marxism, you know, like a theory of social formations and whatever. And uh, Mariategui, well, very, very much influenced by, by the. Russian Revolution was pretty much, uh, how would I say it? He has like this romantic perspective, yeah? pretty much like uh, he said, he, he understands Leninism as a sort of heroism and the revolutionary romanticism, he also says that. And he has this like, um, he also has similarities with Walter Benjamin. I don't know if you have read him. He has a, uh, like this, Benjamin has this thing with, you know, with Judaism and the Kabbalah and whatever, and like the, theo, you know, the like the theologic, theologic aspects of the revolution. Yeah, so um, Mariadi is similar in that respect to, um, to Benjamin. He's influenced by this like millenary mythical um, force in the, in the Andean culture. You know, the, 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 in, the indigenous peoples here in, in Peru have this, and also in Bolivia have this myth of the Incarri. I don't know have, if you ever heard of that. You know, that, that this like uh, prophecy, like messianic thing that someday, you know, they, they are, you know, like, like the chosen one of the Incas will come and, and, and you know, destroy colonialism you know, and, and um, take the, the people- the Armageddon. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Almost, yeah. No, not, not that much, but it, it, it is like uh, they have a, it, it has become more and more secular. You know, like they, there is a Marxist interpretation of Incarri, you know, that, that in the end they will like appropriate the, the forces of modernity and, and use it, use it against. You know? So, yeah, um, it's like a syncretic thing of um, modernity, but also a, a recognition of this mythical force that can be used to mobilize um, political will. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it, Mariate, since he is very much displeased with the interpretations of the Second International that are pretty uh, Eurocentric and rationalist, 
he put the emphasis in the, this mythical aspect, you know, this hero heroism and also the like passion. And uh, he says that in the end, yeah, Marxism, Marxism is a science and as, and as a science is a weapon and it's important, but what is really important for a revolutionary, it's his faith, his faith, his conviction, and his, um, he, he calls it like almost a religious sentiment. So yeah, he's pretty much intense and romantic and whatever. So, um, and also another important thing is, as I said, he's this thing he inherits from Gonzalez Prada that in, in Peru, like um, most of the working class is indigenous. So you have to, into like um, interpret the conditions of Peru, not from the point of view of the European proletariat and industrialized proletariat, but from the point of view of the indigenous peoples. And the proletariat, like the small number of indus industrial proletariat in Peru has to lead or be side by side with these indigenous peoples. Well, there's a need for, uh, specifically Peruvian Andean indigenous Marxism. He is very insistent about that. He's, he, he even has like this uh, famous phrase that Peruvian Marxists use a lot. It's almost a cliche like um, um, socialism hasn't, it's, it's something like it has to be, Carlos, I need your help. He, he, he says something like, ni calco ni copia, Creación heroica. Uh, socialism can't be a copy, it has to be a heroic creation. Something like that, yeah. So yeah, that's what I can say about Mariate. But- So that idea of the sort of, that idea of, of uh, sort of the, uh, looking at the indigenous people, and um, you know, having them at their perspective as the, the proletarian perspective in Peru, mm -hmm. Gonzalo was inspired by that idea, yeah. Which, yeah. which was yeah, contributed sure. by Maria Tate, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but how, could, um, how did Gonzalo differ um, from well, him, or did he? You know, the, the name Shining Path is from a quote from Mariate. He called uh, Marxism the Shining Path to uh, revolution or something like that. So um, yeah, they wanted to like take Mariate for themselves. No, they they wanted to vindicate this figure that was, according to Gonzalo, was uh, for, forgotten or wasn't properly remembered. So yeah, they considered themselves Mariateists. They were Maoists, and then they were Gonzalo in particular was very much impressed with the Cultural Revolution. He was there back in the day. He, he was trained in China in the, in the times of the Cultural Revolution. I even say that that's the main thing he takes from Mao beside the popular warfare idea. But I'd say that in a way, if you see Mariette's te texts and you read them literally, yeah, well, you may say they are Mariette's, but 
I think the, the main thing, this idea of innovation and interpretation based in the real conditions of our country, that's not that much in, in, in Gonzalez's. I'd say that it isn't for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, um, Mariette died very young. He was almost 30, 30 or a little over 30 when he died. So he didn't expanded a lot of his research on Peru. And he used many of, you know, like the concepts of uh, the third and the second international for inter interpretations, you know, like semi-feudal and, you know, the, the social formations scheme. So in Mariategui's case, I understand that because he died young and, and whatever, but um, Gonzalo had 30 years to expand over that and he didn't. So he had these interpretations of interpretation of our country as you know, he, he, he thought he could understand it as uh, almost European feudal, feudal system. And it had its differences, um, important differences. Um, there's also the fact that um, Gonzalo had this, or, the, or I, I don't know, the Gonzalists at least, they had this um, pretty, pretty radical, or, or maybe radical is not the, most adequate word, maybe I'd say extreme, it's different, right? So um, anti-capitalism to the point that commerce in general was considered capitalist. So over the fact that peasants didn't want to follow them because they already had land, they also didn't want the peasants to you know, go and commerce with other communities because that was capitalist. So they punished many peasants because of that. And that gained them, you know, um, opposition with the people. Also, I don't know, it's it's many, many things in, in, in that way. And yeah, he, he, he also thought that Peru was an almost copy of Mao's interpretation of China. So that was also pretty, problematic. Um, the fact that he that they preferred their own analysis from because it was pro I, I, I my, my own lecture is that they preferred this analysis even though they know that they knew that there was a changing situation in the country is because it, it because in the end it was an opportunity to do the revolution. Yeah, it was like a voluntaristic thing, you know, because it's like uh, they had the chance to do to do what the left talked about all day long, and they just jumped overboard to do it. And, and that, yeah, and it was a protracted people's war. So that, so the first step is to take up the guns. Yeah, and the thing is that back in the day when they did this uh, warfare, you had a pretty interesting thing going on in Peru with the democratic left. You had this, uh, that almost all of the communist and socialist parties back in the day, except the Shining Path, had united in a front that was called the uh, United Left. And they went into the elections and they were pretty strong because I, after Velasco's uh, government, 
the working class was was pretty i don't know how, how would you say like empowered like they, they were really velasco did a lot of reforms to benefit the, the the unions and the working class so they were pretty strong back in the day and they they were the ones that overthrew the overthrew the the right-wing military government and they were the ones that got the constituent assembly of, of, of 79. So the working class movement was, was pretty strong and the, and the peasant movement was pretty strong and part and the united left was like uh, re, re, really promising. But then you got the shining path. And that, you know, like was, um, how would I say, it, it weakened the image of the left in the eyes of, of the public. So uh, do you think that that could relate to uh, to to how things are um, today with, you know, Castillo sort of denouncing uh, the left wing of his own party um, in a way and uh, and sort of the, the distance between, uh, you know, the free Peru and well, and Castillo and the what's considered the far left and mm -hmm. as well as Venezuela and, and you know, other, other left-wing groups. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, first of all, Castillo is not from Free Peru. He's, uh, he was invited by the party. And, and well, Free Peru, as you said, Mitchell, um, is, uh, or at least it says it is uh, Marxist, Leninist, Mariachiist party. Um, I, 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 I'll answer the other question that you made before that. I think it is, um, in a way you have like a van the vanguard in the party, you know, like a, a few interesting political cadres are Marxist-Leninists, they are. Uh, the founder, the general secretary, Serron, you know, he's also a Marxist. He was educated in Cuba and his father was also a Marxist. and. And I think they, they are, they are like, they have, they have this political formation, but the party is growing and it's a young party and it's not that organized. I mean, at the beginning they were, and in the first part of, of these elections, that organization served well, Castillo. But right now it's growing rapidly and um, they don't have this, well, the new cadres don't have this formation. So I, I'd say it's mixed, it's mixed and it needs um, urgently uh, this kind of political formation. Um, also, well, I was saying that Castillo is not a, a, a member, an official member of the party or, or he wasn't before these elections. He joined in December or something. Castillo is a union leader, right? a union leader from this, you know, like a teacher's union from um, the Andes. And I'd say Castillo has more of a left-wing nationalism thing. He's not a Marxist. I think he's, I'm speculating here, but I think he's familiarized with Marxism. He must know because most of the teachers are familiar with Marxism Leninism here. Um, but Castillo's also a Christian. You know he's evangelical, so um, he. I I I don't know. That's like an hypothesis of mine. I, I I'm not sure, but I think that that may preclude him from 
going you know, full blown into Marxism. I don't know. I don't know. But he's an ally. He's an ally, and I, I, I think he's more like an Evo Morales profile you know, leader. And that's good. We, we, we need that. We need to, um, I don't know, like develop this or to finish this um, democratic revolution that was started back in 68. We need that. And Castillo, in that sense, is important, really important as a leader. He has congregated a vast popular movement that we hadn't seen since at least the 80s. It's not well, before the so, um, but also um, there are tensions with, I, I wouldn't say they are, there are tensions with the left in the party. I'd say that the, the thing is that Serrón, the secretary of the party, he's, uh, he was sentenced like last year. He has a sentence like most regional left-wing leaders back here. He's, he has a sentence. So um, the press used this to try and put Peru Libre, you know, Free Peru, as almost as corrupt as Fujimori. You know, they tried to play this card that, uh, yeah, well, okay, I, we know that Keiko has these issues and whatever, but on, on this, you know, like uh, nexus with, um, I don't know how you say it, like, narco-traffic and whatever, whatever. But, but you have Sarong and Sarong is sentenced. So he's just as bad you know, as, as Keiko and whatever. And so they got to like uh, compromise Castillo and Sarong that Sarong would, you know, like he would deal directly with uh, party issues and Castillo would deal directly with the campaign. So the press, they tried a lot to show uh, Castillo as Serrón's puppet, and they tried to infantilize him, you know, since he has like uh, an, an accent from the North Andes, and in Lima, they're <laughs> the worst. So they, they tried to put him as, as a childlike figure and an ignorant and whatever, and that he was surely manipulated by Serrón and, um, he tr he needed to uh, like had like uh, distance from Serrón, and and that was like they, they as I said they had a compromise, you know, that he had like Serrón's blessing to do that, but at times they it was evident that the 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 right and the press and also some segments of the left outside Peru Libre you know, like more moderate liberal segments of the left, they all tried to like weaken this alliance between Serrón and Peru Libre and Castillo. Right? They, they wanted to break the alliance so they could co-opt Castillo. So it's like a delicate balance they were you know, there. And, and also, you also have the fact that, yeah, they, they are Marxist-Leninist in, in the, like the, political cadres of the party, but since the shining path and everything, communism is like evil here. Like Macartism is really, really strong group. So when Castillo was in his campaign, um, the press tried to put communism as something that had to do 
almost exclusively with expropriations to small, you know, to small peasants and enterprises, small enterprises, and violent death. So in his campaign, Castillo was like, well, if that means to be a communist, then they are the communists. Yeah. And, and many people in, I don't know, in Argentina and Chile and whatever from communist parties were like, so Castillo is also a Macarthist and he hates communists. But I, I think it's much more complex than that. Yeah. So, um, now the Venezuela thing, I don't think, I mean, for me, it's, for me, anti-imperialism is like, uh, it has utmost importance. Uh, for me, you can be in, in Latin America, in the third world in general, a Marxist without being anti-imperialistic and anti-colonial, right? So I, I, I for example, the other um, left-wing coalition in these elections, uh, Juntos por el Perú, with Veronica Mendoza, yeah, well, they were at least um, in front of cameras, they did denounce Venezuela, no? because they are all day long with the microphone and telling you, well, so do you think Venezuela is a dictatorship or not? And they're like that all day long. So in the end, Juntos por el Perú did assume that um, narrative that, yeah, well, they are a dictatorship. No? So we won't interfere in their affairs, but they, yeah, we, we think that they are a dictatorship. But Peru Libre never never did that until now. They haven't. They haven't. Uh, I think they have like one cadre that right now is the vice president, vice uh, vice president. Um, she's postulating for, for vice the vice presidency, and I think she said once in the press that. But Castillo has never said that, and Serrón is openly pro Venezuela, and. They they also use that against Castillo, you know, the fact that Serrón has these like pictures in, in Caracas, you know, and with Maduro and whatever. But I appreciate the fact that Castillo hasn't got to, to say anything like anything of that sort. And in the first part of the elections, he also did say openly that he considered that it was a democracy. So I don't know. In the end, it, I, I mean, it, it doesn't mean anything because it's an instrument for to win the election or whatever. But I do appreciate the fact that he didn't compromise his principles. So yeah. Well, I, you touched on a point there that was, it works as a nice segue for the next question, um, which is what happened in that epoch right before the electoral run of uh, Pedro Castillo. And one of the things you mentioned that I'm, I'm sure most uh, folks didn't know was that Pedro wasn't in necessarily in the party, he was asked to run. Um, so I wanted to ask you, can you paint us a picture uh, of how the teacher strike Castillo led in 2018 came about? Um, what role did that movement play for the transition into the electoral realm? And then additionally, can you tie this development to the class makeup of the party, uh, to its differentiation with the other major party on the left, which you mentioned, uh, Juntos por Peru, um, and how these differentiations unfolded during the electoral struggle. Okay, that's a hard one. Um, okay, um, the, um, the protest that you're talking about was in 2017, 2017. Yeah, well, I, that's actually pretty important 
for this, these elections right now. And so um, Castillo was part of uh, this teachers union and almost all of the teachers unions in Peru are subordinated to what we call the SUTEP, no? that is like the general union of teachers in Peru. So um, the SUTEP, the SUTEP, SUTEP's leadership is from one of our communist parties, the Patria Roja, I mentioned it before. Um, Patria Roja, or Red Fatherland, they are, um, they were Maoists back in the 70s and the 80s. Right now, they, they, they don't use the Maoist thing anymore. They are Marxist-Leninist, Mariate used to. And um, they, are, they have a lot of like uh, contacts in, in China. They are pretty much in that line, you know, with, and it's pretty interesting. But, but they also have, uh, they, 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 I mean, they, they lead this, this uh, the, the SUTEP and they have uh, control of the, what we call the derrama magisterial. It's like the private, um, how do you say it, like seguros? Insurances. Yeah, like the insurances from, from the, for the teachers. They uh, administrate the, the insurances. So many times they don't want to clash with the government, Patria Roja. They are like more, um, I, I would say, diplomatic. So um, they had this like confrontation with their bases in the unions. No, that the teachers wanted to go to strike and Patria Roja didn't want to. So they split it. And Castillo was designated as the teacher's leader. So yeah, well, you have uh, like a pretty hard antagonism between Red Fatherland and the teachers. They read that many, many cadres of Patria Roja went even to TV with Kuczynski, who was a president back in the day, and they denounced the teachers as members of the Shining Path and terrorists or whatever. So yeah, it, it was pretty a pretty tough breakup. And um, but in the end, the teachers prevailed. The the the, the protest was massive, and they have massive popular support. I was there back in the day with uh, the organization I militated back. In, at the time, and many student movements and a lot of left-wing organizations were backing them up. So they won most of the things they were asking for, among, among them salary and pensions and whatever. Um, so, but they didn't get everything they wanted. No? They, they had to negotiate and, you know, as, use, as usual. So the teachers decided to make their own party. They wanted to, you know, to make a new left-wing party with Castillo as their leader. Um, but they didn't have time to constitute this organization and go to the elections. So there, uh, there you have Peru Libre and Serrón. Serrón 
and Mendoza, Verónica Mendoza, the leader of uh, Juntos por el Perú, they tried to form their own coalition, but they didn't succeed. I will talk about this in a few moments. But so Serrón was alone and he, has his, he had his party and he couldn't postulate because he was sentenced. Oh, he had a habeas corpus the other day, so he's free right now, by the way. So um, he had this sentence and he couldn't go in, in, as a presidential candidate. So he had these talks with Castillo last year and they got him into the project. And that's the alliance between the union the teachers union of Castillo and the Ronderos, no, who are the, I don't know if you've read about the Ronderos or heard or heard about them. The Ronderos are uh, like a militia, like a self-defense militia from the many peasant communities and in indigenous communities in here in Peru. They were formed to fight against the Shining Path back in the day. To, to protect their own communities and also from protect them from the army as you know because they they were you know. so um castillo when he was a teenager he was a rondero so when, when he was like 40 or 14 or, or 15 so he had the back he had the, the, the ronderos with him so with the teachers and the ronderos you know, as a like a broad you know, social movement they allied with uh, with Free Peru and, and did what what they've been doing, you know, like uh, um, the other part of the question was about Juntos por el Peru, right? Um, yeah, well, how, how did this transition into the political effect, the class makeup of both Peru Libre and um, Juntos por Peru? Okay, so Peru Libre is uh, regional party. It's from what we call the North Highlands. You know, Peru is divided into coasts, you know, coastline, you know, Pacific, and the, the highlands, the Andes, you know, and what we call the jungle. You know, it's like the well, next you know, to the Amazon in the Brazilian uh, limits. So Junín is in the North Andean part of the country next to the jungle. And Serrón was the regional governor of uh, Junín. And uh, the party was formed in that region. So Peru Libre's makeup is, I'd say, popular, almost, no, almost entirely popular. Peasants, working class, and maybe a few petit bourgeois no, members but regional petit bourgeois, which is very important here in Peru, because you have a, you are not from Lima, that's an important thing here. So um, on the other side, you had um, Juntos por el Peru. Juntos por el Peru is not a party, it's a coalition between Verónica Mendoza's party, which is uh, Nuevo Peru, New Peru, and New Peru is um, pretty much eclectic. You have uh, like democratic socialism and you have uh, classic social democratic uh, caterers and you have a few Leninists and you have uh, even Trotskites, Trotskites, I don't know how you say it, 
but it's pretty much eclectic. And um, in the coalition, you also have Red Fatherland, like the Communist Party Red Fatherland, and the Peruvian Communist Party Unity. Also, a couple of other parties, I, I don't remember right now, one of them is called the Humanist Party, I think, which, they, which in the end, which were the ones who had the, the signature they needed, the inscription they needed to postulate for the elections, not this Humanist Party. But they had a, I don't know, they, they had a fight in, in the middle of the elections and they went to Peru Libre, this, this Humanist Party. But, but I, I don't know, this um, Juntos por el Perú is more, I'd say, westernized in a lot of ways. They are not entirely from Lima, but I say, I'd say they are like culturally and they're like they're, how do you say it, like, um, The, I don't know, the central you know, thing, like the committee or whatever, they are from Lima, almost all of them, yeah? I know Mendoza is from Cusco, but she's, you know, she's white and she studied in, in, in the Sorbonne and, and whatever, right? So yeah, it's pretty much westernized in, in many ways. And they have, uh, they do have like a, radic a pretty radical uh, base, bases, but most of them are middle class. Middle class. So, so speaking of westernized middle class, petite bourgeoisie, uh, that brings us to the organization of American states, of course. So uh, that's my question: um, Is do you think the election is over, or is 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 this going to continue? Um, as you know, the OAS tends to play a crucial role in stopping leftist governments from being elected and in staying in power. Uh, this week's OAS observation mission statement seems to give this election an international stamp of approval, but it leaves the door open saying, among other things, the OAS, this is a quote from their statement, the OAS electoral observation mission will continue to monitor the process until its conclusion and will present a preliminary report in the coming days. So my question is, what's the OAS up to? Um, I don't know. Nothing good, I think. Um, <laughs> well, we, we, I think we can assume that. Um, well, let's say I, I wanted to say a few things about the, the ideological thing, differences between uh, um, Peru Libre and, and Juntos por Peru, but I, I talk about that later. Um, I, I don't know about the OAS. I think they were they, they are here to be beside Keiko if he if she, I don't know, if she in the end gets with her way, you know, if she finds a way to overrule the election or whatever, the OAS will be here to confirm the fraud, you know, or whatever she says to annul the elections. So I think that, that that's the role that they are playing here. You know? I, I, I don't know. Um, they just haven't come up with anything good yet. No, 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 they haven't. And um, also Evo, I don't know if you said, if you, read that Evo was like uh, tweeting about the, the OAS in Peru and Castillo was thanking him for the advice or whatever. So yeah, it, it's, always, it's obvious, right? Nobody's pretending. So do you, think, do you think they're confused at this result, that it's too close and that they don't really know? 
what to do? I mean, Keiko Fujimori, I don't know if you know, but uh, she has like, after the elections, she's going, she has a case open and she's right. like facing almost 31 years for- Right. So yeah, the desperation so, is in the air, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So I don't know, she'll try almost everything. I think right now that it's probably that she'll try to apply for asylum, maybe in Brazil or, or whatever. But that the, the other thing she's doing is that, is that she's like giving the most reactionary members of the bourgeoisie and the middle classes a, a narrative to cling no, to. But because even if Castillo, because Castillo has already won, but even, and even if he takes the presidency, there you have like a pretty big part of the country that doesn't consider him legitimate because of what they've done. So yeah, it would be pretty rough. And I don't think she has a chance to annul the elections. I, I don't think that she won't, that she will. But in the end, the OAS, I think, is it's here just for if there is a chance, they will be here. I, I think that that's it. it. It's not more than that. They'll grab any any piece of any bit of evidence they can find and then stretch it out. Yeah, you know, to, to, to see it like, not to put the seeds of confusion or whatever, and to like make this, you know, this whole election seem foggy and, and illegitimate, you know, or at least to put the, the shadow of the doubt in the minds of the people. So, yeah. Thanks. Um, so Kayla, go for it. Yeah, let me hop in. Um, so I have two questions. I was actually really enjoying your discussion of um, Mendoza and, and how the party differs in that way. If you wanted to expand on that, I'd like to do that first before I ask my, my wrap question. Is that all right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, thanks. Um, so I think one of the problems that the first part of the elections I don't know if you have heard of this, but when the first statistics of the elections were public, Castillo wasn't even there. Or he was like, like in the margins, he was like, and I, I followed the, the, I followed Castillo's campaign from the beginning, almost the beginning, like from January or whatever. And he wasn't, in the statistics, but when you saw the videos of what was happening in the regions, you know, he let, they, they were like massive congregations. And it was amazing because almost all of the sociological tools they were using, you know, even in the left, because almost all of, you know, like the, the how, how would I say the, the Limian official left, no, they were enamored with Mendoza. No, they were all Mendoza. They were all supporting Mendoza, and they were they all of their cards were with Mendoza. And Castillo was invisible. And even when 
I don't know, almost all of the attacks of the media were against Mendoza because the establishment, even until the last week before the elections, hadn't figured that Castillo was first. He was invisible. So, um, and that was symptomatic because it was not just the right wing who were fooled, it was also the left or some part of the left. Um, about the, the ideological thing, I got into a lot of fights with, because um, with some of my friends from you know, the academic left, because um, I think there's like a common sense about the left that has take root or taken root in, 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 in Lima a lot. That like a uh, political force, a political organization, it's like, um, how would I say, it? like a shopping list. You know, that you have to have uh, all of the um, right causes inside. Huh? So, you have, so you can support them with a good conscience. And Juntos por el Perú is like that because it's pretty much westernized, at, 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 at least their leadership is pretty much westernized. So they have uh, the LGBTQ movement and they also have, uh, uh, I don't know, at, at least from the mouth outside, you have uh, indigenous causes and colonization causes and working class and everything, or everything's there, yeah. But on the, you, if you can't I, get elected, with an exception, with an exception, there's an exception. They are not anti-imperialist. They are not anti-imperialist. Not at least in public. Maybe in private, the the Red Fatherland and the other Communist Party. Maybe in private, they are anti-imperialist. When you talk to them, they are, but not for the media. Okay, so they even they, there was also like. Uh, how do you say, Carlos, how do you say um, scandalo? Um, well, in English, it's, a, it's scandalous. Uh, there was a scandal. There was some scandalous thing going on because they have like, you know, that the right and the press, they like, they had this, uh, oh, like they, they had this conversation from one of the leaders of Juntos por el Perú, one of, one of the congresswomen who was presenting for the party. And in this conversation, she says openly that they are going for the middle classes, that they don't give a shit, <laughs> that it was pretty much scandalous. So they, they didn't give a shit about, you know, like popular classes and they, because they, their vote didn't count and they, they had to assure the, the, the support of the middle classes. Because, you know, like half of the population is in Lima. Uh, it's like 50% of the country is congregated in Lima. So they needed uh, their support. That was their strategy, which to me was like counterintuitive, uh, counterintuitive because the lessons I got for the election of 2016, where I supported Mendoza, was that they needed to work with the people in the regions. And they needed, you know, like to, how do you say, um, like besiege Lima, you know, something like that. 
from the regions. And that's what Peru Libre went for. You know, like they worked with the regions and they had the, the ronderos and they had the teachers and they were, they were, they had almost close to zero coverage in the media, but they were in the regions making their campaign side by side with the people and congregating thousands of persons in the plazas. But um, many people from Juntos por el Perú and the more like academic or middle class left didn't want to support Peru Libre. And they even thought that it could be pernicious for Mendoza. And they were pretty incensed about it. And they didn't like the party. And and if you read the the discussion with with Chris Sancho, you might have seen what it had to do with the fact that you know, uh, oh, they are conservative and they are not with uh, these uh, uh, more, I don't know, they, are, they don't have a formation in gender studies and they don't have, you know, like, I don't know, they don't have this more cosmopolitan perspective. And it's true, they don't. Not all of them, I think it's like, like it's, that's like a generalization, but it was not, like their their main thing you know they they were more with their discourse went more with the uh peasant movements and with the rights of the indigenous people and with the working class discourse and also and also and i'd say this because many people in lima thought they were not feminists oh that they didn't care about the the women's the women's cause or the gender problem. And I, and I think that was wrong. It, it, it's just that they didn't use the word feminist. They didn't use it, you know, but, but in the regions in, in Peru, you have a lot of women organizations from peasant women and working class women and ronderas and, and all of that. And of course they have a different perspective from feminists from Lima, which is more similar to feminists in Buenos Aires or whatever, but it's part of the women's cause, right? So my, my point is that, yeah, they, it, had, it was like incomplete, you know, they didn't have all of the rave indications as part of their program, but it seemed clear to me that they were, going the right way because they were building this progressive political force from the popular masses and it's a process right and even if it had its issues it was better to be wrong with the people i think than to have this like enlightened perspective from the upside right like uh, which is like pretty common here that even the left has this more like this tutelage thing, right? For that which was, which has been the problem with, with the Limian left for almost all of our history, even since Mariategui's time. Mariategui has discussions about this, right? The difference with, between the regional left and the Limian left. So right now Castillo is making like alliances he, he has an alliance with Juntos por el Perú. They 
Juntos por el, one of the, the issues with Perú Libre is that they didn't have much technical cadres. And Juntos por el Perú has have given them their, the cadres, right? And uh, he, he's making alliances. He has have, uh, how do you say, like, um, he has meets with uh, represent no, with people from LGTB organizations, and he's now meeting with feminists. And I think that was the thing they had to do. They had to support them. They have to approach them. They have to have a dialogue. And in the end, as a, they would all recognize as a progressive force, and they will implement these causes. Because I think the, the, the great thing about Castillo in particular as a leader is that he knows how to negotiate as a union leader, you know, that's his thing. And he, ha he has showed a pretty democratic spirit you know, in the good sense. You know, he's, uh, even if he is more of a social, you know, he has a conservative perspective for these uh, sexual morality things. He's open to discussion. And he also, um, I've seen in discussions I've had with many leftist people from, from, from around the world, especially from the West, that they have the same issues with the fact that he said in an interview, for example, that he's against like uh, same-sex marriage or whatever. And the press, and even some parts of Juntos por el Perú in the first part of the election used that against him. They, they were like, no, he's the same thing as a right-wing conservative or whatever. And I think he's, it's pretty different because in the right, you have a explicitly anti-gay you know, anti or anti-feminist thing. And Castillo hadn't, it was more like an omission, which is not the same, it's not the same thing. And he even said in those interviews that a lot of people are quoting that even if he personally had those positions because of his background, which by the way are positions that are shared by, by many people in his region, um, even if that was the case, it was not in his hands. Right? It was something that would be decided when, they, when we you know, join for the, the new constitution and it depended well, upon the Peruvian people. So, and that was like, that's something they are not saying, right? that he also said that, which I think is pretty important too. So I, anyways, that, that's the thing. Well, I think that leads me to my next question. I think, I think you're absolutely right on that, that um, the most important leftist is the one that can get elected, right? And, um, it sounds like he had that sort of volition. So that brings me to the constitution question, which I think is the one that's on everyone's mind. Um, what is the current thinking about how we actually get there? Um, we have this sort of, from my understanding, the constitution that's currently in use is the one that was from the previous Fujimora, Fujimori mm -hmm. um, administration. And so it's sort of this hangover of this neoliberal um, document that is missing a lot of things. So I know he has a number of proposals that are very exciting, um, but he also has a pretty hostile Congress and um, a steep vote count if he's gonna get there sort of the traditional way. Um, so are there indications of where they're going? Um, 
if they can't get the vote, what do we do? What does the future look like? Those sorts of questions. And this is obviously presuming that the election will stand and that there will not be interference. And I'm just saying that that's happening because um, I'm willing it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so, um, yeah, the, well, the traditional way to, to do the, um, the new constitution to replace this one, because this one was, as you said, it was uh, elaborated during the first no, Fujimori, no, Fujimori's father back in the day, mm -hmm. in 93. Yeah. And it was, and it, this is important, it was uh, dictator, dictatorially imposed, no, because yeah. he, he closed Congress and she just, no, and there, there wasn't, everybody knows that there was a fraud no, and, and whatever. Um, the traditional way to, to make the new constitution is with the, with the approval of the Congress. But it's not the only route. We, we have other options. And I think the one that Peru Libre has chosen is uh, the referendum. You know, the referendum is part of this, like what I think the lawyers call um, like, um, Constituent, constituent process. No, this is like a constituent process. So they would go for the referendum. And I don't know, most of the population has manifested in favor of changing the constitution. So I think, <laughs> I think they could actually do it unless it's sabotaged in some way you know, that I'm missing from the, you know, from, from the right. But um, I don't know, I, I don't know. They have a lot of, they have been talking with a lot of people from Ecuador and Bolivia and Chile you know, to try and, and, and learn from their own processes. So I think there's a chance. And the, the new constitution is like, the main proposition from Peru Libre, no? because it would be, I don't know if you have that, in, I, I, I don't know how, how it is outside of Latin America, but but you have like two options, right? That, that the, the constituent assembly with the people from the Congress, no? from, from the political parties, or you have the chance to do it with people elected specifically for the assembly. Not like the popular constituent assembly. That's how we call it here. And they are opting for that, you know, with uh, a quota of, uh, representative, no, of representation from indigenous peoples and paritary, paritary, is it called like that? Like 50% women, 50% men? Yeah, well, so we're, we're going for that and as part of the referendum. So I don't know, I, I, I don't know. And it all depends because it, it is true that right now the political climate is pretty like divided, divided. You have uh, this right wing that has become more and more fascistic in the last months. And anti-communism and McCarthyism right now is pretty strong and 
I don't know, there, there's a chance, there's even a chance that if they find a way to a new elections, I, I don't think they will, but if they do, that would end up in some sort of violent confrontation. It's almost clear to me, it will be that way. So, uh, and if that's the case, you have a perfect excuse for the military to come out, right? So, I don't know, we'll see. That makes perfect sense. I, I think that um, that aligns with basically what I'd understood. I hadn't understood that the referendum um, offered two options or, or that it had the chance to call a popular constituency. That's really interesting. Um, I will look in more into that. that. That sounds promising, but yeah, we'll have to pray there's no interference. And um, um, should I wrap up or, or does anyone have any other questions or, or how are we feeling? Well, um, is there anything else you wanna mention, uh, Sebastian, before we go, anything you felt like we left off the table, maybe um, something in relation to, are, are there any plans to reacting to what is potentially going to be new blockades and, and all of that coming from the US? Cause that's pretty much a given. We know that a priori. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I, I, I don't know I'm not seeing I'm not, I don't think there will be a blockage I don't know I, I because we don't have you know like the strategically important place that Venezuela has for example right we, we are not in the same position so I'm, I'm right now I'm not that afraid about that okay. because also because you know the program for the next five years it's not that radical they can do much in five years and you know that the, the, the three main, th main things are like uh, the referendum, no, the, the the new constitution, and the renegotiation of some contracts, well, like for gasification and whatever, and also the um, I don't know. They have implemented a few things from Juntos por el Perú's plan about uh, making a a tax for the rich or whatever, but it's like 1% or two, it's pretty low. So um, I, I don't see you know, anything like that will come. I think the main thing about the Castillo's government is the democratic aspect of it. Of it. Or the fact that it is the first peasant, government, peasant president that we have. Even Velasco was like a criollo, no? a creole. No? He, he was, uh, from the north of the coast, he, he was, he's, he's beloved by the people or whatever, but he's not one of the people, Castillo is. And, um, you know, it, it, it goes with this uh, plurinational project, you know, almost in line with the one you have in, in Bolivia, you know, because right here in Peru, you have things that all of the services from the state are in Spanish, for example. And that's pretty shady for most of the population outside of the coast, because you have a lot of people that don't have Spanish as a first language. And so, yeah, um, there's this sociologist, Marxist sociologist, René Zabaleta, I don't know if you know him, from Bolivia. Uh, Zabaleta has this concept that I like, uh, that uh, Garcia Linera uses a lot, the, the apparent, apparent state, you know, that it is the 
the fact that from a Marxist perspective, you know, in, in Marx's texts, you have this thing that the state presents itself as the universal interest, but it fulfills the interests of a particular class. And that's like the model of uh, Western democracy. But in South America, in countries like Bolivia and Peru, you don't have that. No? Like you had in that in, 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 in South Africa either. No? So, um, and I don't know, maybe even in the US at some point, you know, with the, with the segregation or whatever, you have a state that doesn't presumes to represent everyone. It openly rejects a section of the population that it's almost like a natural resource instead of people. So um, that's the thing that Velasco began to, you know, to change back in the day, but it hasn't changed in all the aspects of, of the, the thing. So I think the main thing that, come, that could come from, from Castillo's government is this cultural change. You know, the fact that people that are not from Lima or not from the coast can see eye to eye with the other citizens as equals. And that for me is a lot, you know, even it's not as, if it's not a socialist revolution. So a democratic revolution will be fine for now. I think, and I don't think that would get will get us a blockage. I, I I hope so at least. Well, we will sustain that hope with you, and and we also hope that uh, the decision uh, stays and that it's not annulled, and that there's no uh, escalation in the near future. Um, so we want to thank you very greatly for being here with us. It has been a very informative uh, podcast. I know I learned a whole lot. Um, so. Yeah, if you don't have anything else that you would like the, the audience to know, um, we can probably sign out. All righty. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. No, thank you all for the invitation. That was pretty honored. That's great. All righty. This is the Midwestern Marks podcast signing out.